Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather the princes, the governors and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes and the governors and the captains, the judges and the treasurers and the counselors and the sheriffs and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud to you, It is commanded, O people, nations and languages, that is, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery and dulcimer and all kinds of music, he fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, uh, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Therefore at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sacred psaltery, and all kinds of music, and all the people in the nations and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Wherefore at that cert- at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, has made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be, should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods? Now worship the golden image which I have set up. Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, but if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver, deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should be that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was that it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats and the other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that 
took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was, aston- was astonished, and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and spake, and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire, and the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counsellors, being gathered together, saw these men upon those bodies, the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies, that they might not, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Good morning. Thank you for the reading, Steve. Right, uh, is it clear? Thank you. We'll uh, continue our study in the book of Daniel. And, uh, you know, last week, George and asked me to share a story. Uh, he, he preached a brilliant sermon and I agree with everything that he said except one statement. He said, I had a book of thousand jokes. <laughs> Two thousand? Is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I wish I had one. <laughs> it's tough to stay afloat and stay fresh as well. Um, but by the way, if, if you want to give me something like that, please go ahead, by all means. So... Uh, so, um, I have a story that I would have to repeat, and uh, since, since all stories have one goodness in them, which is people either would have forgotten, or uh, there is somebody in the audience who hasn't heard about it. So, uh, but for some of you who have been hearing me for some eight, nine years now, this, this could be a repetition. Right, so, um, there, was a, there was an ad in the newspaper. Uh, it said, wanted man to work at a zoo. Some of you are already smiling. All right, hold on to it, please. Okay. Uh, wanted man to work, as, work at a zoo. And uh, here's this man who was out of a job, and he, uh, he was well qualified. He was a big, burly man. He used to go to gym every day. But since money was tight, he thought he'd try a hand at this particular job offer that was on the, uh, that was on the newspaper. 
So he went and uh, he said, uh, I do whatever you want me to do at the zoo. Um, I just need the money. It's very tight. And so the zoo manager said, um, we are running short of monkeys. And in the next week, it is going to be vacation time for schools. And so a lot of students would be coming and visiting here. And so we need somebody to get into the outfit of a monkey, impersonate a monkey as best as you can, uh, sit there for about 8 to 10 hours, uh, feed the peanuts and the bananas that are given to you, enjoy your day, and then get out of your outfit, go back home in the evening. You get a good amount of money at the end of the month. And uh, he said, that's all right, I'll take up the job because I have nothing else to do. And so uh, he got into the outfit of a monkey on the first day and uh, started eating the peanuts and the bananas that were fed to him. And, uh, you know, you could do that for about three to four hours. And uh, he began to feel that the bananas were getting the better of him. And while he was trying to swing from one branch to another, he slipped and fell into the lion's den next door. And then he began to scream, help, help. At which point the lion leaned over and said, if you don't shut up, we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> you know, often in our Christian lives, we pretend to be people that we are actually not. And the reason is because we don't have a real commitment to the word or the principles of the word. A missionary society wrote a letter to David Livingston when he was in Africa. And the missionary society wrote this way, would you please send us the best route to where you are? We'd like to send some men on a missionary trip to come there and help you. And David Livingston wrote back the most terse letter he has ever written or he had ever written in his life. He said, if all those men are looking for is a good road to come, I don't want such men at all. I'd rather have men who would come to a place where there is no road at all. I'd rather want men who would come to a place where there is no road at all. It's amazing how fickle commitment can be. And for some of us Christians, it's amazing how fickle our commitment is. Dependent upon certain external pressures... We get swayed so easily by the circumstances. And that's part of life for most of us as Christians. You know, um, at the outset, before I begin the sermon, let me give you a very simple way to look at it. Our decisions, our behavior, our actions, the way we talk, all of these things are determined by one of two things. Everything that we do as Christians is determined by one of two things. Number one, the eternal principles of the word of God. Or the second one is external pressure that we face. The eternal principles of the word of God or the external pressure that we face. And the battle is going on all the time in our lives between these two conflicting forces. Do we do what we do? Say what we say? And act the way we act because we have convictions about them? Or do we just do all these things because there is a pressure upon us from outside? Particularly from the world. And we want to prove ourselves to the world. 
because that's really the key issue here as we live and move in this world as Christians. And I'm telling you this morning that I'm not going to talk here about politics or business world or anything. And I'm telling you this morning that the church of Jesus Christ needs men and women today. Men and women who don't care about these external pressures but rely solely on the internal principle of their convictions based on the word of God. And so this raises some important questions for us. How do we stand firm in our convictions when pressures are brought to bear upon us? How do we stand firm in our convictions when pressures from outside are brought to bear upon us? Or better, in a very simple way, what do I need to do when my faith is on trial? What do I need to do when my faith is on trial? We can only be thankful that the book of Daniel in chapter 3 answers all these questions. Three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they demonstrate in this chapter a courage that is amazing and a courage in the fire. And their faith is amazing. Their confidence in the most high God is stellar. In fact, missionary George Verver once said this, we who have Christ's eternal life need to throw away our own lives. We who have Christ's eternal life need to throw away our own lives. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego proved to us in this chapter that they exactly followed that principle, although they did not know about George Verwer. And these men who are willing to do just that give to us a story in the Bible that is true, that is real, and that's one of the most remarkable stories that we have in the Bible. And, and in fact, if as far back as I can go, I think if I remember right, uh, this is one of the first few Sunday school stories that I've heard as a kid. And all of us would have heard several sermons on Daniel chapter 3. And so today's passage will reveal to us two very simple points, two very simple things that you need to do when your faith is on trial. Two simple things that you need to do when your faith is on trial. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. You know, it's, it's a long passage. Again, it's a narrative, and so I'm not going to read the entire passage for you. Uh, we'll, uh, we will just read some scattered random verses as we move along in our sermon. So in verses 1 through 15, can we have the outline, please? All right. So can, in, in verses 1 through 15, you'll see that you must be willing to pay the price for your faith. You must be willing to pay the price for your faith. You and I as Christians must always act on principles based on the word of God rather than any outside pressure or any external pressure. And that's exactly what we learn from these three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're in exile in Babylon. What did they do? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to risk their lives for the sake of their convictions. They were willing to risk their lives for the sake of their convictions. What is, the, what is the context? It played out in three scenes. First thing, Nebuchadnezzar set up an image that he wanted everyone to worship. He set up an image that he wanted everyone to worship. Verses 1 through 7, I'm not going to read all the verses for you, but just verse 1, verse 3, and verse 6 to look at the context. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth Nine, uh, six cubits, that is about 90 feet high and nine feet wide. He set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces, basically the who's who of Babylon, gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that the king had set up. Verse 6, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Daniel is a very thoughtful writer. He is a masterful writer. He knows artistry and all of that. Uh, he had studied all of that in Babylon. In fact, when, the, when a test was taken, he had passed along with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with flying colors. And that's why, if you remember in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar took them and he placed them in high positions in his kingdom. And now, all of a sudden, we come to chapter 3 and we begin to ask this question, how is this chapter connected to the previous chapter where there was a big prophecy? Now, most scholars think that there is no connection between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Um, and this is an isolated chapter, but that's not true. I will de demonstrate for you in the next couple of minutes how this is connected or how chapter 3 is connected to chapter 2. But Daniel spends quite a bit of time discussing about world leaders and world powers and Israel as well. And he's also going to talk and has already talked and also going to talk in the rest of the chapters about Gentile kings and their response to the divine will. And so he does it prophetically in chapters 11 and 12 and he does it historically in chapters 4 and 5. But clearly... There is a connection between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And what is the connection? Can you go to the next slide, please? And I will. So here, if you remember last week or last time that I spoke in chapter 2, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And the dream troubled him. And the interpretation of the dream was given by, uh, by Daniel. If you remember... Uh, he had seen a big, huge image, an imposing figure, and it had a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, th uh, belly and thigh of bronze or, br bronze or brass, and then feet of uh, uh, legs of iron, and then feet of iron and clay, and all of a sudden there is a rock that is hewn by God's hand that comes and destroys this and pulverizes it completely. And the interpretation that was given, if you remember, was that the head of gold was Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar himself on his kingdom. And it, was over it would be overtaken by two kingdoms put together, uh, a confluence of two kingdoms, Media and Persia, which will be again succeeded by Greece, and then which again will be succeeded by Rome. And then ultimately, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, will come and destroy all these things, and uh, he will reign forever. Now, Nebuchadnezzar remembers that the head of gold represents him and his kingdom. And so his, the prophecy or the, pro, uh, the prophecy given by God, the God of Daniel came and said that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is going to be overtaken soon by Media and Persia. And so what is the response that Nebuchadnezzar had? The next slide, please. He set up an image of gold completely. What does it mean? It means that I will live forever. There are no kingdoms that are going to come after me. You believe this, that I will live forever or else you die. And the way you believe it 
and the way you show your allegiance to this image of my kingdom, my reign that is going to be forever is by bowing down to this image. And so he made the image completely of gold, 90 feet high and imposing one again, 9 feet wide, and he put it in Babylon. And not just that, what Nebuchadnezzar did is he was trying to divine, uh, he was trying to thwart the divine will that was shown about how the nations are going to play out and what nations are going to succeed, uh, Nebuchadnezzar the Great. He didn't want that, and so he set up this image. After setting up the image, Nebuchadnezzar said that there's going to be music, emotional and psychological music that's going to be played. And when the music is going to be played, all of you, the who's who of Babylon, would come as, as a matter of national integration, even religious integration, and you would all come together and you would bow down before the image. And if you don't bow down before the image, there was a death sentence that was already passed, which is that you would be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. And when the moment came, when the music was played, it appeared as though everybody paid their allegiance to this particular image. Nebuchadnezzar set up an image that he wanted everyone to worship. Let's go back to the outline, please. Second one. The Chaldeans spitefully tried to slander the Jews. Verses 8 to 12. I'll just read verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know, the Chaldeans had been the mainstay of Babylonian culture. They were the backbone of Babylonian culture. And yet, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of my sermon, Daniel passed the test with flying colors along with, friend, along with his three friends, and so he was taken and set up in a high place and a high position to rule over Babylon. And these Chaldeans, who were the mainstay or the backbone of the culture, did not like it. And so they were jealous about it. And they wanted to pull them down at the slightest opportunity. And so when the moment came for everybody to bow down, and these three Jewish men, and conspicuously, Daniel is absent. Where is Daniel in the chapter? We don't know, probably because he was the prime minister of the nation at that time. He had a foreign visit. That is the most probable explanation we can give. But the fact of the matter is, this chapter covers the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they don't bow down. And boy, they stood out of the crowd, definitely. Three people standing up with a lot of people bowing down. And so, the Bible says, the Chaldeans came and accused the Jews. If you translate that phrase literally, it means to eat the pieces off. They tried to cannibalistically uh, eat up these Jews with their words and tried to shut off their flesh. That is the kind of accusations these people had. And hypocritically, they spoke to the king as if they were defending him and as if they were trying to make him find out if everybody listened to him. And so they come and say, everybody listen to you, king, but there are three men, three men from the Jews, three men from this foreign culture who don't pay any respect to you, who don't pay any respect to your gods, who don't pay any respect to the idol, the image that you've set up. Now, what's amazing here is that these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew the price of disobedience. It was very clearly mentioned to the whole kingdom that anybody who does not bow down before this image will be put into a burning, fiery furnace. And these people knew it very well. 
And you have to ask yourself how anybody could put their principles so high that they would literally stand there resolutely based on their convictions of the word of God when everybody else is just bowing down before the idol. And may I say to you, that is what commitment is. May I say to you, that is what conviction is. And that's functioning on principles based on the word of God, not on any external pressure from outside. Thirdly, the three Jewish men were poised to, to stand up to a furious king. The three Jewish men were poised to stand up to a furious king. Verses 13 through 15. This is a beautiful speech, so we'll read all the three verses. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, it is, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of all these musical instruments, I'll summarize it. If you fall down and worship, I've made what I've made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into burning fiery furnace. And look at the statement. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Just think about the pressure these three men had. Nebuchadnezzar was actually their friend. Nebuchadnezzar was their benefactor. And their carriers in Babylon depended completely on their allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, they don't bow down before the idol. You know, they could have said to themselves, an idol is nothing anyway. Why don't we just bow down before it, but on the inside just curse it and not show our allegiance to it? You know, there, there is this kind of spineless Christianity, you know, where, where people say, I'm actually not bowing down on the outside, I'm just, on the inside, I'm just bowing down on the outside. They could have thought about that. Or they could have said, everybody is doing it. If you're going to reach out to a people or to a culture, we need to be strategic in our approach. And so let's bow down along with other people as well. Or they could have thought, you know, if we give it to this, uh, if we don't bow down, we'll be thrown into fire, we'll be burnt up, and so what a victory it is to the Chaldeans. Let's not give them any victory. Or they could have thought, well, if we don't bow down, or sorry, if we bow down, what we could do is we could stay back here and make everybody Jewish. So they could have thought about several things. There were lots of things they could have come up with to bear upon them as pressures. But in spite of all of this, they were resolute, they were unswerving, and absolutely uncompromising. And looking at this, the king was white hot. And then he went to the point of actually putting himself against the God of the Bible, against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he pits himself and he says, who's the God who's going to save you from my hand? And you will find out when you do that, if you do that in your arrogance, you will find out when you do that, that you found more than a match in the God of the Bible. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to find out, not just in this chapter, but in the rest of the chapters that we'll study in the book of Daniel. And that is the folly of that kind of a pride. But if you remember, just in the last chapter, in the previous chapter, when the gods of the Babylon had completely failed to even... Uh, tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was or the interpretation of his dream. It is the God of the Bible. It is the God of Daniel who gave him the dream as well as the interpretation. How did he forget it so soon? Maybe he was such an egomaniac 
that he forgot completely about the God who gave him the dream as well as the interpretation. And so here we see that the three Jewish men were poised to stand up to a furious king. They were poised to stand up to a furious king. Let me ask you a question, church, and take this question very seriously, and as I take it seriously and sincerely as well. Are you willing to pay the price for your faith? How many of us really give our lives completely and totally to the Lord Jesus Christ? What price do you pay in your life to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's sad to see that some of us can't even pay the price it takes to get up on a Sunday morning and come to church. It's sad to see that some of us can't even pay the price it takes to be regular to our cell groups. Some of us love the benefits of becoming a Christian, but never expect to have to pay any price for being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. May I remind you this morning of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verses 38. He said, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, of him the Son of Man shall be ashamed. Of him the Son of Man shall be ashamed. Steve, uh, Stephen Girard, uh, he, was a, he was a millionaire in, um, he was an unbeliever, he was a millionaire in Philadelphia. And so he ran a big business in the yard there. And uh, he, told his, uh, he told his people who worked under him that they had to work on a Sunday because there was a ship that, that was going to be coming and uh, there was a lot of unloading that was necessary because it was urgent. And so he called all his clerks and everybody to come and work on a Sunday. And here is this man who was courageous, who had convictions that he wouldn't work on a Sunday, he would only worship on a Sunday. It was his personal conviction. So this man, in all courage, walks up to Stephen Girard and he says, Sir, uh, I understand the urgency of your work, but... It is my conviction that I wouldn't work on a Sunday. And the man says, I need you to work on a Sunday or else we could part. He says, sir, I understand that I need this job desperately because I have a widowed mother and I'm supporting her as well. And I, you know that I need this job, but I cannot work on a Sunday, sir. Would you please permit me to go to church tomorrow? He says, well, go to the cashier and take your last check. And the man goes there, takes his last check, goes back home. And the person who was writing this story says, for the next three weeks, he roamed the streets there to get another job, but he didn't find it. And all of a sudden, on the same street, there was another bank, a new bank that was going to be set up. And the president of the bank, who was a good friend of Stephen Gerrard's, calls him up and he says, I'm looking for a clerk who would be in charge of the money initially when we are setting up this bank. And Stephen Girard thinks, thinks for a moment and he says, there is a man that I fired three weeks ago. He would be the right person to be the clerk for your bank. And the man, the president is surprised. He says, didn't you fire him? He says, yes, I fired him, but I fired him because he wanted to work. He said he wouldn't work on a Sunday. But here is what I'm telling you. And listen to me, please, he said. A man who would be willing to lose his job for the sake of a principle is a man you can trust your money with. 
a man who would be willing to lose his job for the sake of a principle that he has is a man you can trust your money with. And I'm telling you, my dear brothers and sisters, if ever there was a time in our country when there is a need for real Christians to rise up, it is now. And you and I in CBF have to be real committed Christians, working, walking, talking, behaving, making decisions on the principles that are internal and based on the convictions of the word of God. You know, the fact is, Jesus gave, your, gave his life for you. Would you be willing to give your life for him? Jesus gave his life for me. Would I be willing to give my life for him? If the answer from you in your mind is yes, if you're willing to give your life for him, then what have you got to lose by standing up for the Lord every day and serving him every day with all your heart? If you're willing to die for Christ, then taking the ridicule, taking a pay cut to spend more time with your family, sacrificially giving to the Lord, taking time to disciple your children and your wife, spending time with the Lord's people, not being hooked on entertainment, and whatever else you may have to do in standing for and serving Christ should all be easy. Because Christianity without a cost is Christianity no longer. Christianity without a cost is Christianity no longer. You know, I was so fascinated meditating on the book that we are studying, um, Discipleship Manual by um, J- um, William McDonald. You know, he says in one of the statements he makes, we have made Christianity look so tame. We have made Christianity look so tame, but there's a cost that, that needs to be paid. There's a cost of discipleship. My question is, are you willing to pay the price for your faith? Am I willing to pay the price for my faith? So in verses 1 through 15, we saw that you must be willing to pay the price for your faith. Then there's a second thing that you need to do when your faith is on trial, and that is in verses 16 through 30. They say that you must desire the Lord's honor more than your life. You must desire the Lord's honor more than your life. You and I as Christians must understand that deliverance is not nearly as important as obedience, even when it comes to giving our lives. Deliverance is not nearly as important as obedience, even if it costs our lives. And that's precisely what we learn from this episode where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wanted the Lord's name honored more than their deliverance. And again, we have three scenes, and we'll do that very quickly. First, the three Jewish men stood their ground trusting in God. The three Jewish men stood their ground trusting in God. Verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What is fascinating here is there's no rationalization. There's no dialogue that is going on. There's no, well, king, uh, what do you want us to do? Can we come to a negotiation here? Can we come to a compromise? Can we bow down when the rest of the nation is not there and bow down just before you? 
or can we bow down halfway and then you meet us halfway as well? There's no negotiation here, but a beautiful, sublime statement. They say we have absolutely nothing to say, O king. What we have to say is this, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from your hand because my God that my, I, we serve is much bigger than your power and who you are. But even if he doesn't, we will never bow down to idols. Their testimony was unflinching, unwavering, and their faith held true in the worst and the toughest of situations. Dear church, I submit to you that this is because they were absolutely committed to the principles of God's word. They had been taught the word of God and they knew that this is the way to respond to a situation like this based upon the truth and they would not compromise no matter what the external, pressure, external pressures were, what virtue it is. And it wasn't dependent on whether they got their miracle, they would accept God's will based on the truth of God's word. You know, like Job said in Job chapter 13 verse 15, though he slay me, yet I will serve him. They knew what happened to their bodies was not the issue, but what happened to their soul was what was important, and their soul was riveted to the truth of God's word. So the three Jewish men stood their ground, trusting in God. Second thing, the Lord protected them with his presence in the burning furnace. Verses 19 through 27, but I'll just read uh, three verses here, 19, 24, and 25. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times, more than it was usually heated. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth one is like a son of God. You know, once again, the king is filled with fury and his face and countenance are changed. And then he says, go and heat up the oven or the furnace seven times over, which means heat it up to as much as you can. And then he ordered the best of his army men, his army rangers, to go and throw them into the fire completely bound. They were with their clothes on, which is adding fuel to the fire again. And so these three Hebrew men were bound and they were thrown into the fire and there was a view from which the king and all his satraps and everybody would watch what was happening on the inside. But fascinatingly, the men, the army men who were powerful and burly and big, who threw them into the fire were consumed themselves in the process. And as they threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, something unexpected happens, or better, something miraculous happens. Two things is what made the king stand up. The king stands up shocked, and he says, two things are happening. Number one, we bound them and put them inside, but they're not bound. They're walking around freely. Number two, didn't we put three men in? And they affirmed, yes, we put three men in. But I see a fourth one, and he looks like a son of God, small g. He is a pagan king, and so in his own worldview, he thought there may have been some kind of an angel who came and assisted them. That's, that's what he affirms in verse 28 as well. But I want to say this to you. I am absolutely convinced that this is something called a Christophany. What is a Christophany? A Christophany is an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ before his incarnation. 
And I believe it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself with his own presence there, comforting the people and being with them in the toughest of their situations. The God who did not deliver them from the fire was the God who met them in the fire and delivered them out of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar was shocked. He invited the three Jewish men out of it. And then they were shocked to find out that their hair was not singed. There was not even the smell of fire or burning on their clothes. The Lord protected them with his presence in the burning furnace. You know, I just want to take a moment to share with you a real-life story. Uh, George Chan, um, a couple of months ago, he was teaching in uh, Truth and Life Academy, and uh, he was teaching theology proper. And he shared an illustration that made me just sit up and take note. Uh, I, I probably cannot get all the details right, excuse me, but, uh, but I will get the gist of the story right. He talked about a man or a missionary by the name of Madan Paul, who was in North India, perhaps in Punjab, and once he was sharing the gospel or preaching in a meeting or something when a, a mob just descended on him and beat him up black and blue. And all of a sudden, he felt that there was, he saw, it was a kind of a vision, I think. Again, you could cross-check and, and get the right details. Uh, it was a man who was dressed in white who took and carried him out of the crowd. Perhaps an angel. We don't know. But the Lord protects us in his own purposes and according to his own will. Thirdly and lastly, Nebuchadnezzar recognized the supremacy of the Lord and honored the three men. Verses 28 through 30, I'll just read verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. I find it fascinating that a pagan king is speaking good theology here. And then he says, as a result of the miracle in the furnace, the king recognized that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is able to deliver his people, is, is the real God, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And only such a God is able to deliver his people in such a remarkable way. And so he issued a universal decree saying anybody who speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be put to death and their houses will be in a pile of rubble. And in the process of the events, he went on to promote Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The question that this morning we have to ask ourselves, as I ask myself is, is your love for the Lord more than your love for everything else? Is your love for the Lord more than your love for everything else? Martin Luther, uh, in his loneliness, when he was in the inevitable hour of excommunication, when he was on his way to the Diet of Worms, and I mention this because this is the 500th year of Reformation. So he was on his way to the Diet of Worms where he had to present his defense before King Charles V. And then, the, and then there was this um, Roman prelate and all of the princes. And then as they were assembled there, people thought he would recant because of the assembly of people and the regality of people who were sitting there. He said, my cause shall be commended to the Lord, for he lives and reigns who preserved the three children in the furnace of the Babylonian king. If he is unwilling to preserve me, my life is a small thing compared with Christ. Expect Expect anything of me except flight or recantation. I will not flee, much less recant. So may the Lord Jesus strengthen me. 
I will not flee, much less recant, so may the Lord Jesus strengthen me. Do we desire the Lord's honor more than we desire ours? Do we desire the Lord's honor more than we desire ours? You know, some of us bow most of the time to the idols of the world to gain whatever we want from the world. We want to be popular. We want to be famous. We want to have great careers. We want to be liked. We want to make money. We want to get promotion. We want to make good grades. And then we want to win somebody over. And so we compromise and, and often in the process render ourselves useless and our testimony negative. There is a call here for an uncompromising commitment to show who Jesus is to the world by the way we act and, the, and by the way we make our decisions. Listen church, we can set the world on its ear. Listen please, we can set the world on its ear. We can turn the pagan world around in a tizzy by living an uncompromising life so that even in their unbelief, they would say, Jesus is the most high God. Jesus is the most high God. And Jesus is the only God who can draw that kind of an allegiance. And if you claim to follow him, and if I claim to follow him, we better really act what we profess. Nate Saint, uh, most of you know the story. Nate Saint was martyred as a missionary in Ecuador, I think in 1956. And his willingness to die for Christ should not surprise us when we consider these words that he had said. He said this, the way I see it, we ought to be willing to die. In the military, we were taught to obtain our objectives. Uh, to obtain our objectives, we had to be willing to be expendable. Missionaries must face the same expendability. Missionaries must face the same expendability. And may I stretch the definition and say, every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ must face the same expendability because he's worth it. He will, he will give you the courage and strength and our God is able to do it. Paul said it very well. And let me just recount for you once again what George Chen preached last week. Philippians 1.21. Can you say it with me? For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is what? Gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death never put any fear in the heart of Paul. Death never forced him to compromise. And all of a sudden, one day he found his head on a block and there was a flashing sword in the sun. And only that the flashing sword would come down with all force and sever his head from his body. And yet he did not recant. He did not compromise. Because to Paul... To live is Christ and to die is gain. Is your love for the Lord more than your love for everything else? Is my love for the Lord more than my love for everything else? So what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole chapter basically says, when your faith is tested, hear me please, when your faith is tested, you must be willing to pay the price and desire the Lord's honor more than you desire your life. You must be willing to pay the price and must desire the Lord's honor more than you desire your own life. You and I must trust in God's great delivering power and allow tensions and tests and trials that come our way to be those which refine us as gold. Now let me finish with an illustration here, a very small one. 
Just two more minutes and I'll be through. Charles Spurgeon said it so well. Just a one-liner, it's a quote. Listen to me please carefully. He said, Beloved, you must go to the furnace if you would have the nearest and the dearest dealings with Jesus Christ. Beloved, you must go to the furnace if you want to have the nearest and the dearest dealings with Jesus Christ. A tame Christianity, a Christianity that doesn't have any price to pay, doesn't have any dealings with Jesus Christ. It is a Christianity that takes you into the furnace. It is a Christianity that will give you the nearest and the dearest experiences and dealings with Jesus Christ. And these three Hebrew men did exactly that. And they experienced exactly what Spurgeon says will happen when we do that. And when you and I get our moments in our life, we walk into the furnace, you will find out that Jesus is already waiting there for us. Thank you for your patience. And may God bless you all as you contemplate on these words. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your scripture. We want to thank you for your words that are clear, although they were written centuries ago. In fact, millennia ago, Lord, they still speak to us very clearly. Thank you for the commitment of these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood for you, who stood for you tall and strong in the midst of a hostile world, O Lord. Father, we find ourselves today in our country in the same situation. I pray, O Lord, that you would give each one of us in CBF the strength to be real Christians, Christians who will stand up to show who Jesus is to India and to the whole world, O Lord. I pray, O Lord, that you would strengthen us, be with us in our furnace, and I pray, O Lord, that we'd come out victorious, boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we submit the rest of the activities, sisters' meeting and our fellowship into your hands. And I pray, O Lord, that the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, would be honored in everything that we do. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Raymond. Good morning, CBF. Welcome, everyone, in the name of our Lord and Savior. Um, today we have a few visitors, so as I call out your name, if you could stand up or raise your hand so people know in who you are, where you are, and we can meet up with you later. We have Junika's sister, Jessica, who's also here with her friends, Merlin and Philu. Sorry, okay. Uh, we have Godwin's friend, Teresa, right at the back. If you can welcome them, church, together.